from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watts-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, our guest is Christian Jogi Phillips, who is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Southern California and author of the book Nowhere to Run, Race, Gender and Immigration in American Elections, uh, which was published in 2021 and the winner of the Theodore Lowy First Book Award from the American Political Science Association. So even though this book has been out for a little while, I thought it was an interesting time to think about running for office and some of the decisions and the factors that go into that because we're already starting to see some candidates make announcements for 2024. And I'm sure there are lots of others up and down the ballot who are thinking about it and going through some of the decision-making processes and the, the weighing that Christian talks about in her book. And, you know, she also focuses a, a lot on the idea of descriptive representation, which I know is covered a lot in, in political science classes, but I thought maybe it would just be worth, you know, talking about that a little bit here at the, the beginning to kind of set up, you know, what that is and, and why it matters in the, the context of this conversation. So descriptive representation is one of those concepts that puts words to the thing that we see and we have a feeling about, but maybe we don't have a word for. And in this case, descriptive representation typically, or kind of on the most basic level, is concerned with the extent to which a legislature or representative or, you know, some sort of body looks like the population, its constituent. So we tend to think about kind of demographic mirroring, and that could be race or gender, but it can also be, you know, like occupation or geographic, you know, where you live, are you rural, are you urban? But I think, you know, all in our, in everyone's gut, we recognize the importance of descriptive representation apart from substantive representation, which is the kind of reflection of interest. So we have a gut feeling that if we saw a representative body that was completely homogenous in some shape, way, or form, we would be really suspicious of that. And so, you know, in a democracy, we expect our representative bodies to not only represent the interest of the population, but also its demographics. Yeah, I think that suspicious is a good word to account for this, right? I mean, there is a you know, longstanding tradition in in politics and in uh, any organization that has any kind of leadership structure is there's this argument that, no, we represent everybody. We don't just represent our group. And, and there was also an argument against women's suffrage that said, no, no, the husband is representing the woman's point of view. And so this is unnecessary. And there's a pretty strong case that in just about every instance, that's just not true. It just doesn't happen. Now you can, you know, you can, how close do you want to cut that? Right. But mm-hmm. um, there, the idea that someone who not just looks like me, but someone who has had my experiences, who knows what it's like to be me is going to be better able to uh, represent me in whatever body politic we're talking about. I mean, I don't think anybody is going to dispute just the kind of prima facie logic of that. And, And so her argument is that we're kind of 
leaving out one specific part of that, and namely where the intersectionality between women and race, um, women and ethnicity. Cass, you want to give the 25 cent tour of intersectionality? I just want to take one step back about one important thing that Professor Jogi Phillips's work does, which is to not only kind of discuss descriptive representation in terms of diversity and mirroring of demographics and experiences, but also to use what we can see in some ways as a measure of legitimacy of institutions. If we see Mm. that a representative body does not look like its constituents, then there there is likely to be some sort of set of structural barriers that prevent people who are not there from showing up. And, you know, this book does a great job of helping us to understand what some of those barriers are at various levels, you know, from the individual level decision, from a group and community level and decision, and then also the kind of larger structural and political barriers like in like districting, for example. And, you know, it's not going to turn on a dime, but it'll get better. And the big issue that she makes is that it's not getting better right? It's not improving. Mm-hmm. You can argue that women is getting better and African-Americans is getting better. But for this, again, this issue of intersectionality, it's not. And so I do feel like that's, you know, a concept, concept that we need to talk about. Yeah, that's a great point, right? So here we see that, sure, there are more women and more people of color, but they are not necessarily women who were people of color. Mm-hmm. And um, so this is where this kind of paradigm of intersectionality helps us to kind of pinpoint this specific phenomenon. So intersectionality is the idea that identities are not mutually exclusive, that they are instead mutually constituted. And by that, I mean, it's really hard to disentangle, you know, if you are a, let's say, Black woman about what influences your life because of your race and what influences your life because you're a woman. These go hand in hand in the way that your experiences are structured. And so any kind of analysis that tries to reduce groups or people into one of these identities is almost always going to be maybe not inaccurate, but it's going to lack the necessary nuance to understand, you know, why do we see that, yeah, there are more women in politics, but they are white women, or Mm -hmm. um, there are more people of color in politics, but they tend to be, say, Black men, for example. One of the things that I really appreciate about this book and and Christian's work is all the examples that she brings in from the interviews that she did as as part of this project. So I think that both of you have done a good job here of talking about the stakes and kind of the table broadly defined. And I think we'll hear in the interview some of the specific ways that that has played out for the candidates and the office holders that Christian talked with. So let's go now to the interview with Christian Jogi Phillips. Christian Jogi Phillips, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So before we get into your work and your book, Nowhere to Run, I understand that um, being an academic is a second career for you. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about what your first career was and how that informs the work that you do. Yeah, they're actually the, they're both the answer to, they're all the same. Um, (laughs) My first career was actually in the labor movement in the United States. And You know, I was working with women of color in California and Texas, trying to work with them to help them build a voice on the job and in their communities and also become leaders in political life. And I really loved that work and I loved the challenge of it. And one of the things I noticed during my career in the labor movement was, you know, looking around, I was around these dynamic women of color who wanted to lead, had the capacity to lead. But when I was looking at election after election, you know, the playing field was not dominated by those women of color. Um, It was largely dominated by men and and largely white men. And to me, that disconnect just really didn't make sense. You know, how could I be surrounded by these amazing women who wanted to lead, would say yes when asked to lead, right? When given resources to really be in the mix in terms of politics and community leadership, And yet I wasn't seeing that translated on the ballot and who was actually in office. And so for me, my work in the labor movement actually led directly to the questions that really drove this book. You know, how could there be this disconnect between amazing women in these communities and what we're actually seeing in the halls of our legislatures and elected offices? How did the women that you worked with, like what, how did they think about descriptive representation? I realize they probably didn't know or like think about that term, but how did they kind of understand the concept and how it play out, played out, or maybe didn't play out in their lives? Oh yeah. I mean, it was really clear, you know, so when I was a political director in Texas, for example, with a labor union, every meeting I went to with an elected official, worker leaders um, from the city of Houston, that's who we were organizing with at that time, would come with me. And so these are folks who hang off the back of a garbage truck and pick up your trash. They're the ones who work in all of the offices that make a, a big city administration run. And, or they're the civilians who work in the police department. They have, you know, and they would come to these meetings and they would walk away with the impression that either the person we had met with actually understood some of the challenges and day-to-day issues they were talking about and that they wanted to see change on, or that they were clueless, right? And a lot of times what they, part of the way they would read that is by that person's background, right? By where they understood that person to be coming from in their life. And, you know, sometimes if they didn't think that they shared some of those important parts of their background, you know, the leaders that I would bring to the meetings, they would explain it and very well, sort of like, here's why these challenges matter. But there was that extra step of translation and trust building that they had to really undergo if the if they didn't feel like that person shared some parts of their life history. And I think that was really, that's a really important part of what descriptive representation helps to propel in a democracy that's diverse, right? And has lots of rich and growing types of communities and types of people in it. If we want to have processes and policies where people trust those we elect, there needs to be some shared sense of understanding of this is what it means to come from a life like mine. Right. And I was just blown away by the information in your book about the number of majority white districts in the country. And and you, I think, are specifically talking about state houses, right? So not Congress or, or local government yeah. or, or, or anything else. But um, can you just break that down? I mean, it is really striking, even though 
in some ways, I think it's people, you know, especially if you pay attention to politics, I feel like it's maybe not surprising, but it is striking when you actually look at the map of the United States in terms of the degree to which white majority districts still define the playing field for politics in nearly every state. And when I say nearly every, I mean all but three. To go back a little bit, you know, when I first started this project, I really wanted to understand how underrepresented are people. You know, I was working in California and Texas. These are, you know, in big cities. So I was like, maybe this is not really a representative situation in terms of understanding, you know, the scope of what types of people are represented. So I collected all this data over 20 years from state legislative elections. And, you know, what I found is when you look across this two-decade period from the mid-90s to 2015, this is a period where the American population is changing rapidly, right, in terms of its racial composition. The roles of women outside of the home are changing and expanding. And yet, when you look at who is getting elected to represent that changing population, what you see over that two-decade period is flatness, is a lack of change, right? Year in and year out, two-thirds of elections, and we're talking thousands and thousands of state legislative general elections across all the states, are won by white men, two-thirds. It's a flat line. Year in and year out, about 20, 21% of elections are won by white women. Really doesn't change very much during the whole period. And then you drop down and you look at the, you know, the last like 10% of elections remaining, and those are the elections that really Asian American women and men, Black men and women, and Latinas and Latinos are actually contesting, right? And are actually winning. And it's such a small slice of a really vibrant and diverse democracy. That to me is the first part that's striking. The second part is the part that you're talking about, which is how our districts actually look, right? So I think that there's two really important pressures that are really squeezing potential candidates and producing that sort of unchanging persistence. And the first is that when you look across the country, the vast majority of districts in the majority of states are white, are majority white. And, you know, the average district population for all of the elections I looked at over this 20-year period was 83% white, right? That's an overwhelmingly white district. And that matters because, you know, technically, if you meet residency requirements and all of that stuff, any type of person can run in any type of district. But if you pay even a little bit of attention to politics, you're going to see pretty quickly there's some intuitive sense, right, about what types of candidates do well in what types of districts. And, you know, I did lots of interviews for the book with donors and activists and candidates who were successful and candidates who weren't and other folks like that in politics. And it was really clear that the racial makeup of the district, it sends really important signals about what types of people can run and win there. And when you have most districts in most states, majority white, the signal it sends is that the opportunities for a person of color to run are pretty scarce, especially if that person of color, you know, is already successful in their lives and has other things going on, which is the kind of person who makes a great candidate. So the types of districts where they think they might be most successful tend to number one or two or a small handful in nearly every state. Yeah. And I want to come back to that decision to run, which is something mm-hmm. that you, you talk about in the, in the book as well. But the majority white districts is, I mean, is this a, a gerrymandering thing or is it just like how we have traditionally sorted ourselves? Is it the legacy of redlining? Yeah. And, you know, the background story on why districts look the way they do is another whole set of books, right? Mm-hmm. But 
I think some of the factors you were talking about are exactly part of the issue. I think one of the things that we can think about is that, you know, as partisans, right, as the Democratic and Republican Party leadership in every state has gotten better and better at drawing districts um, for Democratic or Republican wins, At the same time, voters have also tended to be sorting themselves racially, right, into the parties more and more clearly, right? And the tendency for a white majority district to be a more Republican-leaning district has also increased over time. There are still some districts where there's a slightly just over-majority white population that might be Democratic-leaning, but that's less and less the case when we're talking about the 7,386 districts across the country. And so as parties have been increasing their ability to ensure a partisan win in a district, it also happens to be coinciding with drawing racially polarized districts as well. And, you know, those are things that people on the ground understand, right? And I think that some of those understandings over time, in some states, you know, there might have been a little bit more nuance, maybe two decades ago in terms of, well, you know, maybe like a 20% Latino district with a large white population, maybe that would have been a more partisan mix. But now, you know, that is decreasingly the case over time. And we'll see, you know, as we get more elections going, uh, rounds of elections after this latest series of redistricting, what happens. But in the past, it's generally been the case that when you're trying to draw districts for a party to win, you're also likely drawing a really specific racial configuration. And oftentimes, you know, there are Republican majorities in many, many more state legislatures in the country than there are Democratic majorities. And so they've tended to draw districts that that serve that partisan outcome, and they tend to be majority white. Yeah. And this gets to, you spend, I believe, several chapters in the book talking about uh, Latinos and Asian Americans as crossover candidates. I'm using air quotes around crossover. Yeah, uh, please put and, air and- quotes around that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have heard of this sort of wishful magical thinking, right, about, you know, people people thinking, well, maybe, you know, women of color are just going to be more acceptable to white majority districts. And so if we just find those types of people or, you know, I think racialized notions around like Asian Americans being really acceptable to white voters. So maybe mm-hmm. those are like these magical crossover voters. Mm-hmm. And I think that all of that thinking, while it is true that there are some candidates in a very small percentage of races who do you know, who are people of color who run and win in majority white districts. For Latinos, you know, that's less than 1% of all the thousands of races I looked at in my data Mm -hmm. set. It's very, very rare. Um, But I think that 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 sort of grain of hope stems from the incredible scarcity of majority minority districts. Mm -hmm. And so the reason I come back to it over and over again in the book is because on the one hand, I get really, I think part of why I wanted to write this book is I think that our conversation about majority minority districts and sort of differences between women and men's representation in communities of color tends to tunnel into communities of color and what we think, you know, and frankly, pathologizing communities of color Mm -hmm. and their politics very, very quickly without any frame of reference that what we're talking about is such a tiny slice Mm -hmm. of the overall pie of electoral opportunities. And so I really wanted to reiterate over and over again that this context that's dominated by white majority districts and white male incumbents, frankly, mm-hmm. is as much an important part of the puzzle for figuring out women's underrepresentation as is looking at the dynamics that are happening with majority minority districts. And there are, as we started to say earlier, a lot of 
trade-offs that individuals have to consider and have to weigh uh, in deciding whether or not to run for office. I wonder if you could talk about some of the things that you heard from the the people that you interviewed for the book, and, and if there are things in particular among Latinos, Latinas, and Asian Americans, you know, trade-offs that those groups have that others might not. Yeah, I think one of the things I come back to a lot in the book is you know, we have this larger context where people really feel like their choices of where to run are constrained and squeezed into this very small number of majority minority districts. And then within those districts, I really saw persistent and systemic challenges for women of color, the Asian Americans and Latinas I talked to in this book, to be recognized as viable candidates in those districts. You know, so before we even get to the question of whether they want to run for a particular seat, a lot of times these women are actually invisible to a lot of the men of color who are really controlling a lot of the access to resources in these really important districts. And so when they're trying to decide to run, I think part of there's this invisibility that has mm-hmm. to be overcome, right? And then there's also this really, I think, specific push and pull that women of color from immigrant communities have experienced in this way that they described in interviews. So one part of it is I have worked very hard. Maybe I'm a person who in my community or in my family is seen as the person who made it out, right? To achieve this level of professional success or community leadership such that, you know, I'm thinking about running for office or other people might be thinking about me as a candidate for office. And so I have all of these folks who I know, you know, really look to me to come and speak for other Latinas or other Filipino American women or or what have you. And at the same time, I also recognize that these, you know, places like the state legislature, not really made for people like me, right? There will be significant challenges in trying to get what I want to get done for my community in this type of arena. You know, so the work I'm doing maybe as a nonprofit leader, right, or as an immigration attorney might be the better path, right? So there's that push and pull of like, you know, the Thea's are telling me, you know, Miha, we want it to be you to speak for us. And then at the same time, I'm really getting pulled in another direction of thinking, is this really the place to get it done for my community? I think a second tension that I I haven't seen in other books on specifically candidates and some of the tensions they face is really around being connected to an immigrant community. And this idea that several, you know, several interview subjects, sorry, I'm getting a little um, choked up because they, they talked about, you know, the lives that their families had led over multiple generations in order to make it possible for them to go to a fancy undergrad, right? To get a very stable job. And and this idea of multi-generational effort to find stability in the United States, in the economy, you know, that up against the notion of telling those very same people, I'm going to go run for this job that's basically full-time work for part-time pay and I could get fired every two years. You know, giving up that type of success and how that success is defined in certain types of communities for another thing, which seems incredibly unstable and precarious, is really a tension that I think can really make some folks feel really ambivalent about something that to, uh, in other communities might seem like an obvious choice. You know, you're a great leader, you have good ideas, you should run for office. The equation is right. just a lot more complicated. Right. And is is another tension here that, you know, you, you, you talking about the you know, multi-generational effort to get to an under, 
graduate or this, the kind of the American dream trope, right? So it's like, I'm the one that did all these things and now I'm going to, you know, run for office. And that's the story about me that's going to be out there and I'll be perpetuating. But yet there's that kind of masks all of the ways in which the system is not set up to help everybody else in that community. So is that a valid tension that these folks face as they're running or thinking about running? Yeah, I think that folks come into, and I'll say this, you know, I spoke to a number of candidates who were very clear with me that, you know, part of the reason they wanted to run is because they did feel that sense of, you know, America made something possible for my family that would not have been possible in the country my parents were born in or the country my grandparents were born in. Right. And they want to be really, I think they were quite genuine and explicit about saying, I feel like this is part of what my family owes to America is me trying to do something better for my community and elected office. And I want to take that really seriously. And at the same time, because they are people who are experienced in the community and have worked on a number of issues, they recognize that there are some real limits to what happens in legislatures in terms of advancing the needs of their communities, right? Or in terms of being able to act for the specific parts of their communities that they see as most urgently needing attention and resources. And so I think they come in eyes wide open. You know, they know what their families, the work that their families have done, what some of the barriers to that have been that are a a product of the way our society is organized in the United States. And they still end up deciding. And in some ways to me, it's surprising that people decide to run for office sometimes because I'm like, after all that, they still decide, you know what, this is where my leadership is needed, right? This is where my community needs a voice. And particularly amongst the Asian American women and Latinas I talked to, that was a central and overriding concern. That's what finally tipped them over the edge to say, you know what, I am going to do this Hmm. because the aunties want me to speak for us. You know, that's what's most important here. The other uh, interview that really struck me from the book was Daniela Rojas and what she had to say about ambition and stereotypes about that and how that fits in here. So um, can you tell us who Daniela is and uh, yeah, how this idea of ambition for women further complicates this picture we've been painting? Yes. So Daniela Rojas is a Latina elected official who was really generous in sort of sharing how not only how her actual life fits in with her life as a political leader, but also in being really clear with me about how she how she felt people were viewing and judging that life, right? And how she had arranged it. And, you know, she said this thing that I had heard from a number of people, right? Which was about being open about ambition, right? So I think one of the sort of ongoing drumbeats in political science about why women are underrepresented is, you know, this series of studies that argues that, well, they just aren't as ambitious as men. And in the book, I show that that's quite true when you're looking only at white men and white women. And part of that is driven by white men's incredibly outsized ambition. It's, I don't, you know, I'm not sure how you want to characterize it, but the way I read it is that white men's ambition is just so much higher than every other group's. But, you know, when you actually look at other groups and the differences between women and men, it's not clear to me that there's uh, some sort of gender difference in ambition. And so folks, you know, want to lead and they know they would be good leaders. But part of how that ambition is viewed is a tricky thing to navigate. And I think that Daniela Rojas was really 
careful about how she talked about her ambition and who she talked to about it at what stages, right? Because it was the kind of thing where, you know, she felt if she told people she wanted something, uh, an elected office, it, what would carry, what would follow her around for the rest of her political career was that, oh, she just wants it. You know, she just wants that office for for her own personal, how do I, how does she talk about it in the book? It's something like she's just about that office or she's just about having that title, right? And that people would immediately assign to her this sort of superficial desire for attention. And so she really felt like she was stuck between like, how do I let people know I want to run for this office and I want to be a candidate without being labeled, you know, oh, she's just in it for the title, right? Which Mm -hmm. is not something that, and that came up in a number of ways across interviews that people read and interpreted ambition from the Latinas and Asian American women that we were talking about in such a different way, right? In another interview in the book, this really important, I would say, political organization leader, you know, described this Latina and he said, oh, you know, she's basically been wanting to run for office since she was a little girl. And, you know, there aren't many like her. And the way he talked about her being open about running for office was almost like she was a cartoon. And that was, you know, and in the same conversation, he also said to me, you know, most of the women I talk to, they just don't have that thing, you know, that ambition where they really want it, like the men I talk to. And so, you know, you have this incredible disconnect where on the one hand, you're telling me that women don't have this expressed drive, this real cutthroat desire to be in office. And yet at the same time, when you describe women who express that kind of ambition, we don't look at them the same way, right? And they're judged as being about something other than representing their constituents and wanting to make change. So as we start to wrap up here, you mentioned earlier that you know we can't separate our identities and think about you know only women or only people of color. And so as we start to think about like how to move forward here or how to fix some of these things or how to make things better, more equitable, are there groups that are trying to put those things together. You know, I was thinking about Emily's list or represent women, but I I wonder to what extent their work is either explicitly or implicitly focused on white women or doesn't really apply that kind of intersectional framework that you outline. You know, I think there's different types of sort of organizations and their roles in this process to think about. So the ones that you're talking about, these, you know, these groups that really Um, sort of help women in particular try to overcome this idea that they have to know more and and have more experience. They provide these candidate trainings. And I'll say that from what I've seen over the past few years, I have seen groups that are focused on women, for example, I think take much more seriously the diversity of need and necessities for different types of women from different types of racialized communities. And so I think that's a good thing. And I think that's a promising sign. At the same time, You know, I also have seen a few organizations that I think are focused on specific racialized communities take more seriously that, you know, we might want to think about how we recruit and encourage women from this community in distinct ways or or what are the particular challenges. Um, But I think that there's also an organizational need in terms of, you know, these the organizations that really tend to power the campaigns of women and people of color, you know, and I think that. In those organizations, so for instance, if you think about sort of organizations that raise money for Latino and Asian American candidates, right? Some of the conversations I was having with those organizations when I was working on this book, maybe five or six years ago, you know, I would ask at the end about, you know, so 
what does it look like when you drop the list of the five candidates you want to support? Where are, you know, are there, is there one woman on it? Are there four women on it? What does it look like? And is that something you guys are thinking about? And, you know, there would be a lot of uncomfortable shuffling and sort of, you know, we are working on it totally, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure that I've necessarily, you know, I'm not sure that we've had enough time to really see how much of how much truth there is there and how much growth there has been there. And I think that, you know, organization, the other thing to think about is how, you know, big organizations that drive these campaigns think about, you know, what kinds of risk are we willing to take with candidates of color outside of really safe majority minority districts? Are we willing to invest more in developing candidates and leadership in 20% Latino districts and 30% Latino districts, right? Or districts with 10% Asian Americans. I think that that's an organizational conversation also that needs to keep going. You know, I think that when you look at some of the states, for example, where folks are starting to win, clearly there's a, there is some expansion strategically uh, of thinking about like, where can we win? You know, and I was thinking, I was looking at some of the results from 2022 and, you know, we've just had this round of redistricting. So it's kind of interesting to see what's going on because overall, after the 2020 round of redistricting, there's actually fewer majority minority districts than there were before 2020. And, you know, there's some key states that really have gone in opposite directions in terms of those, right? So Texas lost five seats, California lost a seat, Florida lost six seats, Virginia added seven seats, right? Massachusetts added five seats, Michigan added four seats. So in some of those places where there's some growth um, and in some places where there's loss, you know, our organization's thinking a little bit differently about, you know, where it's worth it to invest in candidates of color and what those different types of investments need to look like to bring both women and men of color to the table. You and I were chatting before we started recording that this is the time to kind of take stock at the end of one cycle and look forward to the next. So I wonder, you know, what you're going to be keeping an eye on throughout 2023 and as we head into the next round of elections next year. Yes. One of the things I'm always paying attention to is, you know, what proportion of candidates of color are coming out of majority minority districts? And where are we seeing candidates of color emerge in districts that aren't majority minority? And how does that look different or the same amongst women and men? So that's something that I've been, because I haven't seen a big shift yet in those terms, but it could happen, you know, and we still have data coming in from 2022. I think the other thing I'm really interested in is legislatures that are close to or have just passed having a majority women, right? So there are three legislatures that have uh, 50% or more women in them, California, Nevada, and New Mexico. And California has recently had a big bump in the percentage of women. And I'm really interested to see, you know, these incumbents in office play such an important role in shaping, you know, the dynamics and the processes that bring forth new candidates down the road. And I really want to see whether or not having such a, a larger number of women shapes some of the political landscape in terms of some of these networks that I write about in the book that are pretty oriented around men. And I think that one of the things I'm particularly curious about is, you know, in these states, a lot of this growth has been amongst women of color. And I'd really like to see whether some of the dynamics that have shaped things in the years leading up to the period I cover in the book, whether there's a shift, you know, or whether there's, you know, a little bit of movement, but people are still kind of constrained by the institutional forces around them. I'm really curious to see how these new larger groups of women in legislatures, how they do things a little bit differently. 
Well, maybe we can have you back on in in a year or so to talk about it and uh, see where things are. But for now, we'll link to your book in the show notes and your website as well, so people can follow everything that you're up to. Christian Jogi Phillips, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. I'm so glad that we brought on Christian, and thank you for your interview, Jenna. One of the things that stands out to me about Christian's work and the book is that it focuses on state politics and representation. And I just think that's so important because this is where so much of the action is happening. Um, Even when we talk about the nationalization of American politics, part of that happens because it's so easy. It's much easier for interest groups to have a disproportionate say um, and how things work at state levels because people aren't paying attention. And so I'm really appreciative of the work that was done here. And then it's really difficult work, right? Because there are over 7,000 state level districts and Christian's data is freaking amazing, covering almost 63,000 state level elections over a two decade period. But the thing that stands out, and Chris mentioned this earlier, is that the change in representation by race and gender really hasn't changed very much over that two-decade period. Traditionally, people have focused on, you know, majority-minority districts as safe havens for candidates of color or just hoping that the increasing diversity in the population will produce more diverse representative bodies, but that's not what we see. And so I really appreciate Christian just pointing that out and then helping us to think through one of the reasons or some of the reasons why that is. My question would be, why is this? Why is it that you don't see that change? You know, is it simply that the politicians are who are making these redistricting decisions are white males and, you know, sexist and racist? Is it because they don't give a damn about intersectionality, but just want to win and they think they're not going to be able to do that with crossover candidates? You know, even though that may not be correct, they may, that's what they think. Is it because there are gatekeepers within these communities that are keeping women of color who are obviously have the skills of leadership, but they're discouraged from running for office. I mean, I just wonder, you know, what accounts for this? And I I don't see a lot in the book that really kind of tries to answer that question. So I disagree in that. One, I think you're right. I mean, we, every political scientist who studies American politics will tell you that representatives are single-minded seekers of re-election. And so they will do almost anything to ensure that they have a job come the next election. And what that means today, especially, is that representatives choose their voters instead of letting voters choose them. So we know that to be true. Right. We know that, um, you know, over the past several years, more conservatives are controlling state legislatures. And so if we go back to the previous point, we would expect to find districts that are made um, to crowd out, you know, non-conservative <laughs> uh, leaning districts. And we and we know that um, that race and 
partisanship are increasingly, you know, intertwined Mm -hmm. um, and Mm -hmm. correlated. So we have these kinds of ideas. And then, you know, I think it's also poignant, you know, people will always be like, but the libs, the, (laughs) you know, I have read a mini, a paper uh, about the extent to which even liberal white Americans are, they, I'm going to use air quotes, statistically discriminate against people of color because they believe that other white liberals uh-huh, will not uh-huh. vote for them. Right. But um, we've also seen, you know, again and again that when people of color run and when women run, they tend to win. And so there's a lot of unpacking to do there, mm-hmm. which I do think that Christian does over the project around each of the mechanisms and points of concern that you raise. You're right. You know, I think this question of, you know, why is that? Why is it that these, you know, these women, you know, despite the fact that it's so hard for them to get on a ballot, do, you know, just as well as in in terms of as a quote unquote crossover candidate as a white person or a white woman would. And I just wonder if there isn't something to be said for the fact that because it's so hard to get through all these, you know, jump over all these hoops, the women who actually end up doing that have already shown themselves to be really outstanding candidates. And so they do better. Is that, oh, is that yeah. a um, fair question, a fair assumption? Totally. I think my sense is that the research shows that. And the thing about politics is that, I mean, there are special things about politics, but politics also mimics other domains of our lives. So we tend to see that women um, will not try to get a promotion before they think that they are ready. And mm-hmm. that means they, you know, like build up all of these resources and skills to get this, you know, next new big job. Men don't do that. <laughs> they don't do that. And we see that in politics as well, that it's once a woman decides that she's going to run, it's because she knows she's going to be an excellent candidate. And we've seen again and again where there's a really highly qualified woman next to some dude. And then uh, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. there's like a question about like, you know, is she prepared about how, who's going to take care of her children and mm-hmm. the sound of her voice, all of these things. And so, you know, who wants to get, who wants to go through that? But, you know, we see that once, you know, folks who are who decide to do that tend to win and they often can win in majority white districts. I think we you know, we can just stipulate that all this data is pretty convincing. Right. That Mm -hmm. these that this issue is that there's a problem of representation Mm -hmm. and it hasn't gotten better over time. Mm -hmm. So what do we do about this? Mm-hmm. Because I, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I suppose you can make the case to, you know, politicians, gatekeeper, polit- party gatekeepers that mm-hmm. look, you know, we can show you evidence that, that mm-hmm. these people, that these candidates are just as viable as any other candidates, but uh, you know, they want the, to keep that seat or they want to win that seat. Mm-hmm. And that is basically the extent to which they're, you know, they're concerned about this. When you look at Congress, well, you have, or gubernatorial elections, you have 50 of those. That's not a lot of data points. If you look at the congressional level, you know, you have 435 plus the Senate, you know, that's 
more, but still, if you look at the state level, which again, which we're saying is where a lot of things happen, we can leverage more data to see, well, what are the circumstances under which we have so-called crossover candidates, where they're elected? And I think by doing this really hard work at the state level, we get more information about the context that candidates of color and women of color and, you know, maybe even LGBT candidates, just under historically underrepresented mm-hmm. minorities can be elected um, through this kind of work. So I think that's the first step. Whether people take in the information, well, that's a whole nother problem. And I, I don't I don't know if that's within our purview. But I think that this is a really important first step is to myth bust and to provide information and nuance to people who are using their gut reactions around what kind of people are electable and viable and who is not. I think that's fair. And I take the point. And so, you know, we need to kind of keep our finger on the pulse there that there are, you know, organizations that are focused on all sorts of people, but it would be ideal if, you know, organizations that have had success are willing to broaden their lens to incorporate and elevate a a wider swath of people, even within a particular group. So even within women, right? Right, right. And, you know, as you say, and as it's demonstrated, there's evidence that that works, right? When people take that leap, that it actually is is uh, successful. So, well, you're, I mean, I think your basic point that this is a, you know, a fairly new step in an important conversation is right. And it's really backed by just solid and really incontrovertible evidence. And so it, it's really helpful to have this book out there. So, Thanks to Christian for a really excellent book and a great interview. And thanks to Jenna, as always. I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Candace Watts-Smith for Democracy Works. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Public Media. Our editors are Michael Klein, Chris Kugler, Mark Stitzer, and Clint Yoder. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. Additional production support from Andy Grant and Christine Allen. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Democracy Works is a member of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our podcast collective devoted to democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.